Amen. Okay, well, uh, I've uh, gone through the ones that uh, uh, have been uh, turned in so far. We have some more? And uh, I've separated the ones out for, uh, that uh, have to do with healing. This being healing school, I want to deal with those first. And then, of course, if we have time, we'll take care of the, uh, uh, we'll take care of the others. So let me get these uh, sorted out real quick. That's all right, good. Let's keep them coming. There's no way I can cover all these. Okay, uh, let's uh, start going through. I've got um, um, probably, uh, well, what do I got? Three, six, ten or eleven maybe that uh, have to do with uh, with healing. We'll deal with those and uh, then uh, we'll see what we, I doubt if we'll have any time left. I, I doubt if I'll be able to even cover all these. But um, uh, nevertheless, we'll uh, take care of what we can. Let's... Um, Let's start with the first one in the list. The question is, what's the difference between laying hands on the sick and raising people from the dead? Do I have a promise for both? There's only one time in the, um, uh, in the scripture that, uh, uh, that Jesus commissioned somebody else to raise the dead. And uh, that was uh, the occasion that he sent the disciples out. And um, uh, so as far as a promise for both... Um, it's kind of difficult to say that there is a promise to raise the dead. However, Jesus said that we'd do the same, those that believed in his name would do the same works that he did and even greater works than those would he do. We have record in the book of Acts that, uh, that Peter raised the dead. And uh, so it's certainly not anything that's uh, outside of God's uh, power or his purpose or his will. But as far as, a, as uh, uh, having a scripture to say, well, such and such a scripture says that I can raise the dead, I, I don't really see one of those. Let me explain a little bit further as far as uh, the, the first question, and that was what's the difference in laying on the hands and raising the dead? We've got specific scriptures that say that these signs will follow those that believe in his name. One of those signs in Mark chapter 16 is they'll lay hands, they, the believing ones, will lay hands on the sick and the sick shall recover. There's no question that healing for the physical body is included and a part of what Jesus paid the price for when he went to the cross and even, in, even before he went to the cross when he was uh, beaten in Pilate's court. And, um, and as a result, healing is unquestionably identified time and time and time again as a part of the redemptive work of Jesus. We don't have that same, uh, same example or that same witness for raising the dead. Now, here's why I believe that's true. First of all, there is no place, since there is no specific scripture that says and these signs shall follow everybody that believes, they shall raise the dead. Then Romans ten seventeen says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word. Where would you get faith to raise the dead? Now, you can certainly have faith to lay hands on the sick, because the Bible speaks of that time and time and time again. But if, if and since faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, what scripture are you going to use to raise the dead? The only one you could come up with is, we'll do the same works as Jesus did, and the greater works than those shall we do. Well, that's fine, and that's certainly true, and we know that it's possible, and it's in the realm of the works that are available, but who determines? Do you decide that, or does God decide that? 
For example, in, uh, in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and his company was in um, uh, Philippi, the Bible talks about how that there was a, uh, a little girl that was possessed with a spirit of divination, the Bible says. Uh, another translation says she was uh, possessed with a spirit of fortune-telling. Well, it says every day that she cried out uh, concerning Paul and his company, these men are the servants of the Most High God, which do show unto us the way of salvation. The Scripture goes on to say, this did she many days. Now, I don't know how many many is, but this did she many days. But one day, Paul, being grieved, turned about and said to the Spirit, come out of her in the name of Jesus, and, and it came out the same hour. King James says it came out the same hour. Another translation, uh, and the words, literally the Greek words say, and it came out immediately. Now, that doesn't mean instantly, but it means forthwith. In other words, it wasn't just a matter of a few moments. It could have been instantly, but we don't know exactly. But it came out really, really quick, quick enough for everybody to know, quick enough while they were still standing there for everybody to realize what was going on. Well, that's what caused the problem with them being thrown in jail. Now, the question is this. If Paul had the the Spirit of God upon him with the power of God to cast out devils, why didn't he do it on day one? Why did it take many days for him to be grieved? I mean, was this... Uh, was his being grieved not a matter of being grieved in his spirit by the work of the Holy Ghost or the impression of the Holy Ghost? Was Paul just finally annoyed? He's had this enough, and so he's annoyed, and so now he's going to cast the evil spirit out of this girl? I don't believe so. I believe the fact that the Bible says Paul being grieved in his spirit means the Holy Ghost finally moved upon him to do something about it. Well, again, the question is, if the Holy Ghost says that we have authority to cast out devils, why didn't Paul do it on his own? Well, now, the Bible says you've got authority over the devil in your life in every aspect, in every respect. But you don't have the authority to cast out the devil in somebody else's life unless they give you permission. Or unless the Holy Ghost moves. See, some things have to be initiated by God because your authority has limits. There is no limit to your authority in your life. There is no limit to the authority you have over the devil's power in your own life. But there is a limit to the authority that you have over the power of the devil in somebody else's life. So if we're going to raise the dead, which we know that the Holy Ghost is certainly uh, able to do, the power of God is certainly sufficient for it, and we know that the Holy Ghost will do that on occasion, how are we going to have faith for it? If there's no scripture that we can go to and say, according to John whatever, or Acts whatever, we know that we have the power to raise the dead. If there's no scripture like that to produce faith, Bible faith in our heart, then that's going to have to be a manifestation of special faith then, won't it? That's going to be one of those gifts of the Spirit or manifestations of the Spirit that are identified in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Well, who determines? The Bible says these things are divided separately as He wills, the Holy Ghost wills, not as you will. Boy, I wish it was under my control when I could manifest the uh, gift of the Spirit. But you can see what a mess we'd make of that. We'd be doing things according to our emotions and not according to the direction of the Holy Ghost. See, you can't manifest those things on your own. And this is the problem that so many times people get themselves into when it comes to healing ministries or or what people identify as healing or gift ministries. You can have somebody that's got a special anointing, a special healing anointing, or maybe a miracle anointing, a working of miracles, an, uh, an anointing or a gift of the Spirit to work miracles. And they'll go to people's services like that, and they'll see marvelous things, and they think that the guy can just turn it on and off whenever he wants to. And sometimes, I know Brother Hagin told stories about in the healing revival, that there would be times where certain people felt the, felt the, uh, uh, the pressure to perform when the Holy Ghost wasn't moving that way that night. 
But people came, the, the people had heard the, the stories of the miracles, and so people came to see the miracles, and so they felt like they were under pressure. Well, when you get under pressure and you're willing to step out and do something where God's not leading you to do it, then, then the, the devil will meet you there. And there was, I know Brother Hagin was, I won't call any names, but Brother Hagin told about the story where one guy would operate by the Spirit of God one night to perform miracles, and he'd operate by familiar spirits the next night in the word of knowledge. Or what was a mimic or an imitation of the word of knowledge. It wasn't a genuine thing. Brother Hagin talked to another minister, an older minister about it. And the older minister said, I'm, interested, I'm uh, surprised and interested that you saw that. He said, I saw these things back in China when the, uh, in the, when the China Inland Mission was first opened. Well, some people don't know the difference. Some people just see the supernatural and they say, well, oh, that's got to be God. Well, the devil does supernatural things too. So what, what uh, basis would we have to raise the dead since there's no scripture that says that that's a part of the work that Jesus has given us to do? Well, what are we left to do then? Well, same thing that Jesus did. We'll do the same works that Jesus did. One of the works Jesus did was preaching and teaching. Not only healing, but preaching, teaching, and healing. The more you share the truth of the word of God with people, the more they open their heart to you and give you opportunity, permission, literally, to minister to them, then the more you can expect the Holy Ghost to move. I've seen, um, well, I might as well just tell you this. Uh, no point in moving on. If this is the only question we get to, then this is it. Um, my dad died in, uh, of lung cancer in 1980, May of 1980. And uh, uh, there was a minister, a Rama graduate, that had started a church in a nearby town uh, just outside of uh, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, where we lived. And uh, like I said, he was a Rhema graduate, and he preached faith and all this kind of stuff. And my dad died at, uh, well, let's see, he was uh, either 47 or 48, one of the two. He was real young. I, I had no idea. At that time, I had no idea how young 47 or 48 was. But, um, uh, but anyway, he died at 47 or 48. And then the Bible says that, um, that Moses in the Old Testament was lamenting the fact that people were dying at 70 or 80 years of age. In other words, he wasn't saying that we could only have 70 or 80 years. He's complaining to the Lord that, uh, that people were dying at 70 or 80 and at such a young age. Well, of course, that was because they had disobeyed God and they were dying in the wilderness and some other things that were associated with that. So anyway, I mean, it's obvious that, that, this, the, that 47 or 48 doesn't qualify as long life uh, under anybody's definition. So we, um, I, I wasn't at the hospital at the time that we got the call and and uh, neither was my brother, so he picked me up, and we went down to the hospital, and um, the, uh, the pastor of the church met us there. And um, good guy, uh, good heart, well-intentioned, and so forth. But anyway, he's standing there, and, uh, and he asked my brother, um, what do you have in your heart about this? Now, my brother and I were both just brand new in this stuff, and uh, I'd been listening to Brother Hagen for uh, a number of years, probably about... Uh, well, pretty close to three years, I guess, at that point in time. But I, I thought I knew something. But looking back at it, my goodness, I didn't have enough sense to get in and out of the rain spiritually. And my brother wasn't any more spiritually mature than I was. And so when the pastor asked, we naturally, I mean, I didn't respond. He didn't ask me. He was talking to my brother. They were closer than I was to uh, the pastor. And uh, so when my brother responded, he responded the same way that I would have. And that was out of his emotions. And he said, well, I don't, I don't think it's time for him to die. And so the pastor said, well, I don't either. 
Now, folks, I got to tell you, they're both right. It wasn't God's plan for him to die. God didn't want anybody to die at 46, 47 years of age. Or 47, 48, whatever he was. That's not God's plan for anybody. That's not long life under anybody's definition. Nor should it be. But that doesn't give you the power of God to do something about it. Just because it's a tragedy, just because it's a shame that somebody didn't live out the full length of their days, that doesn't give you the power to do something about it. So, the, um, uh, we were there, in the, as a matter of fact, by the time we got there, he wasn't even in the hospital room anymore. They'd taken him down into the basement where the, the hospital morgue was. So they've got him on a gurney there in the hallway. It's, uh, it's not the, even part of the, the hospital that was finished. It was just concrete center block and uh, painted center block and that kind of stuff. It was just, you know, kind of, it felt like a dungeon. It really was the basement. And uh, so there was a hospital representative that was standing there and, uh, you know, grief counselor, chaplain, I don't know, whatever they were. And uh, so they're standing there. And, and uh, so you could tell that the presence of, of this guy was really kind of bugging the pastor and my brother. And so, um, uh, so they, one of the, the two of them asked if he'd leave him alone and, you know, give him some time for us to be alone with, the, with my father's body. Well, the guy didn't, he was hearing some of what was going on. He didn't want to leave. He's got to be thinking these people are nuts. Long story short, the guy wound up going around the, hall, around the corner, down the hallway. And um, my brother and, and the pastor prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, laid hands on the guy laid hands on, on uh, my dad's body, did everything they could to raise my dad from the dead. I mean, they wore themselves out. Finally, I guess it created enough of a commotion to where the guy came back and now he had some other people with him. And that kind of threw a wrench in the works too because they were trying their best and well-intentioned. Now, the only reason I'm not involved in this is because I was younger. My brother's three years older than me. If you ever see him, he looks a whole lot older than that. But nevertheless, I was the younger guy and, and nobody's really looking for me or to do anything or have anything or be anything. And so they're doing all the work. And so I I'm, I'm get the benefit of telling the story on them and uh, not really being involved. But uh, anyway, they tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and nothing. They commanded him. They, at one point, they tried to lift him up off the gurney and stand him up because, uh, you know, we'd read that Wigglesworth had done that. You know, and all you know is what somebody else did. But see, the thing about it is Wigglesworth was prompted by the Holy Ghost to do those things. There's a big difference in trying to imitate what somebody else has done because they got results and being moved on by the Holy Ghost to do it. So it created quite a stir. I mean, we were um, pretty quickly kicked out of the hospital by the, the representatives and, and so forth. They thought we were nuts and, and, uh, and, and we were acting like nuts, to be honest with you. So it's not something you can do. I mean, if anybody's going to be able to raise the dead on their own, then everybody can. But that's not the way that it works. There's another thing that's, uh, that's interesting. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, actually, if you look throughout the whole of the Old Testament, along with the ministry of Jesus, you'll never find that any old people were raised from the dead. They're always young people. Remember in Jesus' ministry, he came up on a funeral procession, and it was a young lad. The Bible calls him a young lad. Jesus touched the beer, meaning the coffin, raised the boy from the dead and gave him back to his mother. So I'm not sure exactly how all that plays out, but I do know this. I know that it takes special faith and it would take working of miracles in conjunction with it. Maybe even gifts of healings because something caused that person to die. 
Well, if you just raised them from the dead and didn't heal them of whatever caused them to die, they'd die right again. They'd die instantly. As soon as you raise them from the dead, there they'd be, they'd be gone again. So it's going to take a combination of a couple of things. And there's no scripture that says that we can have that whenever we want. Now, there is scripture that says that we can resist the devil whenever we want in our own lives. Whenever we choose to exercise authority over the devil, that's the point where it takes place. But it doesn't say that about the use of the gifts of the Spirit or manifestations of the Holy Ghost. So that's the difference in laying on the hands and raising the dead. I hope that's a little clearer. Okay, it says, the next one is, when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Why did he have to allow Satan to torment him during the time he was dead? Well, um, I, I, I kinda, I'm going to have to take exception with the way that that's stated. Jesus did not allow the devil to torment him during the time that he was dead. However, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Now, what does that mean? What death is he talking about? Is it saying the wages of sin is physical death? Well, if that were the case, then all Jesus would have had to do is die physically, and he could have redeemed mankind from the curse of sin and and death. But that's not the case. See, Satan, when Satan uh, convinced Adam and Eve to disobey God in the Garden of Eden, they died that day, but they didn't die physically. So what death did they die? They died spiritually. So when, when God said that the wages of sin is death, he's talking, about phys- uh, he's talking about spiritual death. Now, it took about 900 years for spiritual death to overtake Adam's body. Now, and that's a, that's a fascinating statement to me, or fascinating truth. Adam, the life of God in Adam was so great that even after he died spiritually, the natural healing and regenerative process that God placed within the human body that still exists in there now was sufficient to stave off physical death for 900 years. That's mind-boggling. It's amazing to me how the church wonders about whether or not it's God's will to heal. If you cut your hand, healing is built into your body. You've got an immune system that is built and designed to repel foreign matter and bacteria and germs and virus and so forth. And if everything's working the way that it's supposed to work, and certainly that was affected and and, uh, perverted by the law of sin and death, when spiritual death overtook the world, But if everything's working the way it's supposed to work, your body will heal itself. Well, where did that healing power come from? Where did that healing agent or healing operation begin? It began when God created man. Everything about God's creation is regenerative. So when Jesus died, he had to pay a spiritual death price. Now, to say that Jesus allowed the devil to torment him is a little bit... um, Uh, Well, there's an element of truth there, but it's not actually true. For example, Jesus said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And if I lay it down, then I can take it up again. So Jesus did go willingly to the cross, knowing that the the three days of torment in the pit of hell was waiting for him. I believe that's what he's agonizing over in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's sweating great drops of blood, why else is he going to be worried about it? Because he died on the cross quicker than the two thieves that were crucified on the right and the left. So Jesus did not spend a long time on the cross. So what is he agonizing about? What's he sweating great drops of blood for? It's got to be the penalty of spiritual death. It's got to be. And when Jesus was in the, the, the pit of the earth, when he was in the belly of the earth, the Bible says that God laid on him not just the price that an individual would have to pay for their own sins, but the sins of all of mankind. So in other words, there were other people in hell. There were other people being tormented by the torments of hell when Jesus was there. But they're paying 
for their own spiritual death. They're paying the cost of their own spiritual death. Jesus is paying everybody's. That's why the Bible goes into some detail. In Psalms 69, I believe it is. He goes into great detail about the waves of the torment of God. The wrath of God that beat upon him wave after wave after wave. Crashed upon him. Crushed him. Wave after wave after wave. And there were some tremendous things that Jesus said in the, in the, the well, that Psalm says about Jesus' time in the pit of the earth. And when it talks about him, he's asking, is there hope for a man in this kind of death? And he concludes, yes, there is, but only in God. So when Jesus said it is finished, he's saying it's finished, meaning the law. See, redemption wasn't finished. It wasn't finished on the cross. We couldn't say that when Jesus cried out when he was hanging on the cross and said it is finished, that was not the redemption of mankind. Because, again, if that was the end of redemption, what did he have to spend three days in the, in the, uh, the lowest part of hell for? Because there was still a price to pay. So what was finished? What was finished was the law of Moses. When he's crying out saying it is finished, he's saying the law is finished. Now, the last thing Jesus said was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's an indication to me that spiritual death or that, uh, uh, that, that death has literally taken, taken him over. I believe Jesus began to lay down his life in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because you remember the, the angel came and strengthened him. Well, what's he strengthened him to do? To stay the course. It's kind of a, a blasphemous thing in some people's uh, estimation to think of. But Jesus had to have been tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane to give this whole thing up. I certainly would have been. How about you? The Bible says Jesus was tempted at all points like as we are. That means he was tempted to give up. You ever been tempted to give up? You ever had some real good opportunities to quit? And you had to decide whether or not you were going to? Well, if you have, if you've been tempted in that way, and I think we all have, then that means Jesus had to be tempted with that as well. We have the idea, we have the religious idea that Jesus kind of just cakewalked through life and things just happened because he was walking in the will of God. But it didn't, there's no time where even when you are walking in the perfect will of God that it's a cakewalk. The devil will come and he'll bring attacks against you. So Jesus had to be attacked the same way. So the only reason Jesus was willing to lay down his life, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross and he became obedient to death. He saw the end result of resurrection. That's why when Jesus appears to the disciples after he's raised again from the dead, he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. In other words, the first thing Jesus identified to the disciples when he was raised up from the dead, he said, man, guys, things are different. Here's what I want you to do. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, I believe it is, or verse 18, maybe it is. Anyway, Revelation chapter 1, when Jesus appears to John on the Isle of Patmos, he doesn't look the same. It's what we knew him. It doesn't look the same as when John knew him on the earth. His eyes are flames of fire and his hair is white as wool. He's shining. Not shining like the transfiguration, but he's shining because of the glory of God that's his forever now. And Jesus said, I am he that is, I am he that liveth. I was dead, but now I'm alive and live forevermore. And then he said this, and he said, and I have the keys of hell and death. Where did he get those? He got those through conquest after the three days in the heart of the earth, in the lowest part of hell, when he was raised again from the dead. That's what Jesus was after all from the beginning. He was after the destruction, destroying him that had the power of death, Hebrews says. 
He destroyed Satan who had the power of death. And that's what Jesus came for. That's why Romans 8, 1 and 2 is so important. Eight, Romans 8, 1 says, There is no, therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2 goes on to say, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. If we ever really got an eye, our eyes opened, our spiritual eyes opened to what being free from the law of sin and death means, our trouble with the devil would be over. Our trouble with the devil would be over. John Lake was in uh, South Africa um, back in the, well, what would it have been, 1920s, I guess, 20s or 30s. And there was an outbreak of the bubonic plague. I wrongly stated here just a couple of weeks ago that that was Ebola, and it wasn't. I, I didn't check my facts on that. I took somebody else's word for it, and I, here I did preach the wrong thing. So now I've made my correction. But anyway, it was the bubonic plague, and it was such a terrible uh, plague and uh, such a disaster that the American uh, military sent um, uh, doctors and surgeons and everybody that they could to try to stem the tide of this plague. And when they got there, they saw that Lake was working with the sick people, and the way that they died, they died with some kind of bloody froth on their mouth, and, uh, and, and uh, they, they knew that that uh, whatever the spittle around people's mouth was just filled with these uh, plague disease germs and, and, and all this kind of stuff. So they asked John Lake, they said, we noticed that you're, you're working with the sick people. You're not working with a mask. You're not trying to protect yourself. So what immunization have you found that keeps you healthy? And Lake said, Romans 8 two. And they certainly didn't understand what he was talking about. And he said, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. They said, what do you mean by that? Well, he took, somebody had just died, and so he took a, a microscopic slide, and, uh, or a slide for a microscope, I'm trying to say, and, uh, and he kind of scraped it on this person's mouth, and he put it under the microscope, and it showed that this thing was just full of these uh, bubonic plague germs. And then he took it and uh, put, pulled it out from under the microscope, wiped it on his hand, let it sit there for just a few seconds, wiped it back onto the microscope slide, and put it back under the microscope. And now all those germs are there, but they're dead. See, he had an understanding of what being free from the law of sin and death is all about. Folks, that's not something that's available just to a few people. That's available to everybody that's made Jesus the Lord of their lives. Redemption really means something as far as God's concerned. The fact that you are redeemed really means something. It's a fact. It's not just a hope. It's not a promise. It's not something we're trying to attain to. You really are redeemed from sin, sickness, and poverty. So when Jesus is out on the cross and said it's finished, first of all, when he said it's finished, he's talking about the law of Moses being finished. He allowed himself to go to the, the lowest part of hell for those three days because that was necessary to obtain your redemption. Okay, the next one. So how do we distinguish an occasion for healing from the God-blessed end of our life? Um, well, nobody's going to know that but you. Nobody's going to know when your time is up but you. There's um, uh, a story, a lot of stories I could tell you on this. Uh, E.W. Kenyon is uh, the one that I'll refer to first. E.W. Kenyon died in about uh, 1947, I think it was, uh, 47, 49, somewhere in there. Uh, and, um, uh, and he was an older man. He was in his 80s. And uh, the, the last day he spent on the earth, uh, he told his wife and his daughter, his daughter was older at that time, and, um, uh, and they were, um, you know, kind of caring for him. Like I said, he's an older fellow. He was quite a bit older than his wife, if I got the story right. 
And so he told them uh, on the, the last morning that he was here on the earth, he said, well, I'm going to go home today. Well, they thought he was confused. They, they started telling him, Daddy, you are home. You know, what do you think you are? You are home. Well, he didn't try to explain to him. He didn't do anything like that. So, you know, mid, mid-afternoon, they, they told uh, some of the people they were concerned, the, the wife and the daughter were concerned, you know, because he's not usually confused like this and we don't know what this means and, and that kind of stuff. So they told some of the people that were close by and close friends and so forth. So there were several people that came to see him that day and, and uh, so forth. And uh, so people were asking him questions. They were kind of doting on him and, and concerned about him because, you know, do you not know where you are, you know, and asking him stupid questions and stuff like that. And about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he said, well, I told you I was going home today. There's Jesus. Goodbye. And that was it. Head fell over on his chest, and he was gone. Well, how would he know that? He had to pick something up in his spirit about that. Charles Capps had a very similar experience earlier this year. He was 80 years old. He told his family when he was going home. I don't know about you, but those are the kind of people I want to follow. So how would somebody know from the outside? How would, how would somebody perhaps that was close friends with, with Charles Capps or E.W. Kenyon or one of these other guys that had this experience, how would somebody else know? They wouldn't. But see, in both cases concerning them, they didn't die sick. They just said, it's my time to go. I'm, I'm going home. I saw a real change in Brother Hagen. Um, oh, I don't know, about uh, about five years. Uh, maybe it was longer than that. Five to ten years before he went home to be with the Lord. His, uh, his last family member died. And when he was left alone, he was uh, the last one of his family. I, that really affected him. And it surprised me. Because he went to his, uh, it was his brother and his younger brother, Pat. He went to Pat's funeral and, um, uh, and came back, and boy, he was a different guy. His funeral was in Texas, so by the time he got back to Tulsa, Brother Hagen was a different guy. And he, he was in this funk for about two weeks. And, uh, and, and it, it kind of scared me because uh, I'm thinking, you know, and, and because he was talking like that. He said, you know, it's, it's kind of tough. But he kind of broke down and, and, uh, uh, once when I was with him and he, uh, right after he'd come back. And he said, it's kind of tough when... He, when you're the last one of your family. And uh, he said, I really wasn't planning on that. I didn't think it would affect me this much. And so for the, for the uh, maybe a couple of weeks, not quite maybe, but close to two weeks, he, you could tell he was really thinking, do I want to stay here? My family's gone. I'm the last one. Do I want to stay here? Well, thankfully, he came out of it and stayed another five to seven years, something like that, before he went home to be with the Lord. And Brother Hagin went home to, the way he, to, to be with the Lord the, same, the way that he always said that he wanted to go. His favorite meal was breakfast. His favorite part of breakfast is strawberries. And so he said before, he'd said this some years before. Uh, it wasn't something to say all the time, but, but I heard him say it once. He said, you know, when I go home to be with the Lord, it was after we was eating breakfast one time and he had a big bowl of strawberries. He said, you know, when I go home to be with the Lord, it's going to be after a big bowl of strawberries. Well, that's just the way it happened for him. He was at home, had his strawberries, and that was it. Laid his head down on his chest and went on. Well, how is somebody else going to know that for you? They're not. But see, the Bible says you don't have to be sick to go home. These were men that lived out their lives in health. And that's what we should aspire to. I don't think it's ever God's will to, to, for somebody to die sick. Now, that's not to say that anybody that does die sick doesn't know God or doesn't love God or their faith doesn't work. 
there are all kinds of things and different things that are involved in people receiving or not receiving their healing. And I'm, not, I'm never in a position to be somebody else's judge. But again, I remember Brother Hagin talking about dealing with people, even older people, in his church in the, the 12 years, uh, one of the churches that he pastored during those 12 years early in his ministry. He said there would be some times where uh, one lady in particular I remember, he said she was uh, 70-something years old. He said that she was trying to get him to give up on her, just just let me die, let me go home to be with the Lord. And he said, no, sister so-and-so, let Jesus heal you and then go home if you want to. Well, that's the way it happened. Funny thing about it is after she got healed, she wasn't so interested in going home anymore. I think a lot of times people just give up. They get tired and they give up. Now, I'm not throwing rocks because I'm not their judge. But I think a lot of times people just get tired because of a fight, the fight of faith concerning sickness, especially when you get older. And I think sometimes people just give up and let it go. But that doesn't mean it's God's best. So I don't think there's ever an occasion where somebody is facing or fighting, uh, standing against sickness, where laying on of hands is, uh, is inappropriate or believing God with them for their healing is inappropriate. I'm never going to be in a position to say, well, I don't think God wants to heal you because it's your time to go. So I don't think there's ever a discrepancy. I don't think there's ever a conflict between believing for healing and somebody's time to go home to be with the Lord. By the way, you decide when that is, not God. I know there's a lot of stuff being said about this uh, um, recent minister that died in a plane crash along with his family and some others. Somebody sent me an email the other day saying, why did these other people have to die because it was his time to go? Folks, God wasn't in that. God didn't do that. John 10.10, 10, and the rest of the Bible is still true, no matter who dies, how. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life, and that you might have life more abundantly. He said, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That wasn't God. Yeah, but he prophesied his own death. He didn't prophesy a plane crash for himself. And if he did prophesy a plane crash, what's he traveling with other people for? If I know I'm going to die in a plane crash, I'm going to go alone. That's not God. The devil certainly got in and caused the tragedy. It wasn't, and I'm not the one to decide how or why or who did what or who missed it or who did, you know, that's, that's foolish talk. That's between the individual and God. But that doesn't mean that we throw the Bible out because of somebody's experience. Amen? Amen. All right, well, let's take another one. Here's a good one. Did God kill the Egyptian firstborn? Who wants that one? Well, how did the Egyptian firstborns die? They died because of the angel of death. Who sent the angel of death? If the devil sent the angel of death in that case, in that condition, then Moses is working hand in hand with the devil, not God. Who sent the angel of death? Had to be God. Now, why is that? Well, People need to understand some things. In other, well, let me say it this way. I think it's beneficial for people to understand some things. John 10.10 10 is, is a verse of scripture we just referred to. Jesus said, the thief comes not but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. Does that mean God never killed? There were times in the Old Testament where God instructed the children of Israel to kill their enemies. Right? First thing happened in the promised land, the city of Jericho. He instructed Joshua in taking the city to kill everybody and, and, and to destroy everything. Right? Well, 
we can say, yeah, but God didn't do that. Joshua and the children of Israel did. But let's quit splitting hairs over things. If God told them to do it, then God's a party to it. Now, how is it that the Old Testament can talk about God executing uh, judgment and death upon people, but then Jesus said that the the thief comes to kill, to steal, and destroy, and I'm come that you might have life? Because prior to this, and and you'll see in every case, in every situation where anybody died at the hand of God in the Old Testament, you'll find that in every case, it was the execution of judgment against sin. Now, under the Old Covenant, there was no separation between the individual and the sin. And that's what's so important about understanding about Jesus' work of redemption. Jesus took sin upon himself so that God can look upon you without seeing sin. Where Romans chapter 8 says Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. Literally what that's saying is that Jesus made a one-time separation between man and his sin. Which means God could execute judgment upon sin without executing judgment upon man. He couldn't do that under the old covenant. There was no separation. How does God judge the sin and not the man? The only opportunity for that was those who were followers of the law looking forward to the promised Messiah. Which is why God made a place in the upper regions of hell called Abraham's bosom or paradise. Those are interchangeable terms. Talking about the same location. The place of the Old Testament saints. But he still couldn't be with them. He couldn't receive them unto himself. Because until sin, their sin, was paid for once and for all. God could not look upon man, sinful man, without executing judgment. Righteous judgment upon sin. So did God kill the Egyptian firstborn? Well, the angel of death did. And the angel of death was sent by God. Why? Because the angel of death executed judgment upon the sin of of, uh, the Egyptians against his covenant people. Now that sounds harsh. And it's not the way that it works now. God doesn't judge anybody. Jesus spent a long time during uh, one discourse in his ministry talking about how God doesn't execute judgment or condemn any man. But that Jesus' judgment is condemnation enough. Well, what was Jesus' judgment? Jesus' judgment executed judgment upon sin by being the sacrifice for it. So it's a real important distinction that you need to understand. When Jesus said, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I am come that you might have life, Jesus is saying, there'll never be a time after me where God will ever have to execute judgment on an individual. They're judged by their own actions. They're judged by the word of God. They're judged by the action of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. But in the old covenant, it wasn't that way. There were times where God did kill people. He killed the enemies of his people to protect them. He instructed his people to kill their enemies in many cases because it shows the the representation and the illustration of the righteous versus the unrighteous. And folks, there is a destructive aspect to the judgment that comes on the unsaved and the unrighteous. Amen? Okay, we could spend a lot more time on that, but we'll move on. Okay, the next one is, uh, how do you know when you're in faith and not hope? Well, the real question is, uh, well, wait a minute. There was another one here similar to this. Let me see if I can cover them both. I I guess I misread it. Okay, how do you know when you're in faith and not hope? Well, what does the Bible say faith is? Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. In other words, uh, I, I was watching, uh, we like to watch uh, one of these shows on, uh, I don't even know what channel it's on. It's called The Prophet 
where the guy comes in, tries to save small businesses and stuff like that. And they're always advertising this show. I've never seen it before called Shark Tank. Anybody watch Shark Tank? Okay. Well, there's a, there's a quote that they keep you putting up there uh, on um, the advertisement for Shark Tank when I'm trying to watch. And you know how they cover half the screen nowadays with the, the advertisement for something else. Anyway, there's a quote that one of these guys on the Shark Tank, I guess, said. And it says this. It says, uh, um, a goal without a timeline is a dream. A goal without a timeline is a dream. Now, here's what it's saying, and that's a scriptural principle. It's the same thing as the difference between faith and hope. Hope is something that you want. Hope is something that you aspire to. But if there's no legs to it, as the business world would say, if you don't put legs to your dream, then you can't ever expect anything to happen. A lot of times people are hoping for something, but they don't give any legs to it. What are the legs that you give to hope? The words of your mouth. What are the basis or what's the foundation for the words that you speak instead of just speaking out some kind of pipe dream? I know with with my son, I've had to deal with this, deal with him about this all of his life. My son is a dreamer. I mean, he's got this idea that everything's just going to work out right and everything's just going to lay down in front of him and the skies are going to open up and he's just going to be a millionaire before he's 25 and everything's just going to work out wonderfully. And we always asked him, We said, okay, well, what are you going to do to make that happen? Well, he's not planning to do anything. He's just planning to walk through life and have a good time and have everything work out for him. Well, how many of us have found out that's not the way things work? A lot of people have dreams, but they don't give legs to the dreams. The same thing's true where faith and hope is concerned. Hope is the dream. Faith is the legs that you're giving to the dream to receive it and make it a reality. Now, spiritually, that's kind of tough to explain to somebody that is not knowledgeable of spiritual things. Because legs, giving spiritual, giving legs to something in the spiritual realm is kind of difficult because that's not a matter of your actions, the, the work of your physical hands or the actions of your flesh. It's a spiritual action that has to be taken. That spiritual action is to receive the word of God and begin to confess it with your mouth. The difference in faith and hope is what you're saying. Now let me, uh, this is what I was going to, I was planning to preach on tonight, so let me, let me expand a little bit on this. You remember, for example, let's use um, uh, Mark chapter 5, the woman with the issue of blood. It said, uh, why don't you turn there, Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 25, it said, there was a certain woman which had an issue of blood, 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, spent all of her living, and nothing was better, but rather grew worse. Verse 27, when she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, thou seest the multitude thronging thee and sayest thou who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. How do we know whether or not she was in faith or in hope? Her faith was shown by two things. It was shown by the words that she spoke and shown by the action that she took. Now, let me ask you this. Why didn't she just hope that Jesus would come by her house? She'd have the same hope for healing either way, wouldn't she? Why didn't she just stay home and say, well, 
If God wants me well, then Jesus will come by here. But instead, she went to where he was. Why? Because that's what faith does. Faith goes to where the answer is. And where is the answer? The answer is always in the word. So faith goes to where the answer is. Faith goes to the word. Faith goes to the word, finds the answer, and speaks the word of God. Because your words are the expression of your authority in your life. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind because she said, because she said, because she said. One translation says, or or, uh, one account of this, says she began to say continually. She began to say continually. Now, folks, what if this hadn't worked? Now, I know people consider that to be a statement of unbelief, but what if it hadn't worked? What if she didn't feel power going into her? No, she didn't feel anything until she, after she spoke and acted. She wasn't looking for a feeling before that. But what if she hadn't felt anything after she spoke and after she acted? What if she, hadn't, what if she didn't get anything instantly? What if power hadn't gone out of him and into her? What if it had not been tangible power that she could feel? What if it had been unseen power and she was not conscious of anything happening in her? What then? See, I think a lot of times people are, are in what they think is faith. Uh, well, let me, let me back this up first. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12 says this. It says, be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith and patience inherit the promises. You know what the number one problem is with people in, the, in their faith fight? The fight of faith, the good fight of faith? Time. And so many people are believing for something to happen by a certain time or in a certain way. And they're holding out thinking or at least in, in their opinion they come across as holding out to the end hoping that it works in time. Because man I'm on my last leg here. I'm running out of steam. If it doesn't happen soon then I'm going to run out of gas on this thing and then I'm going to be lost. That's not patience folks. Patience is the pillar of faith. Patience says, I'll be constant whether I feel anything or don't. I'll be constant whether I see anything or don't see anything. I'll be constant whether the circumstances change or whether they never change. Somebody said it this way. If you prepare to believe God and stand forever, you won't have to. But if you don't prepare to stand forever, you may have to. What if it hadn't worked for her? If it was real faith. If it was real Bible faith like Jesus identified, she'd have gone her way and received her healing at some later time. Whether the power was seen or unseen, her faith generated and triggered that power. She was willing to stick with it as long as it was necessary. She may have followed him for, for the rest of his time here on the earth. That may have been the determination she had. I see too many people that are trying to get something to work by the end of the week because if it doesn't happen by Friday afternoon... I'm just out. Well, that's never going to be the kind of faith it receives. So the difference in faith and hope is very simple. Faith is the legs to the dream that you have. And every dream has to have legs if it's going to be received. Okay. Let's see about the next one. Well, this one is related. Time is difficult when you're questioning if you're doing all you can. How do you keep your focus on faith and not time while waiting. Uh, turn with me to Hebrew. I mean. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I'll say it again. 
I just said it a minute ago. The issue that the devil will try to cause you to turn loose and let go about is time. Without the time problem, then faith is not a fight. Paul said, beginning in verse 10, writing to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 6, he said, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. Wherefore, because of this, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. William's translation says when evil attacks you. I like that. Not just the evil day, but when evil attacks you. Notice it's the armor of God that protects you and enables you to stand when evil attacks you. So he says, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day when evil attacks you. And having done all to stand, stand. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. And then it talks about the pieces of the armor. Now what's the whole point of the armor of God? The point of the armor of God is to be equipped with God's word so that you can hold your position. Faith is not a forward progress. Faith is an immovable position. The devil is going to try to distract you to get you to move. The devil is going to try to use circumstances against you to make you back up. Everything about faith is talked about as a fixed position. The Bible does talk about walking by faith, but that's talking about living our life fixed and established in the word of God. Everything about the devil is to try to get you to move, meaning to change your position. The Bible says, having done all to stand and everything there is to stand is Gaining the knowledge of the word so that you're equipped with the armor of God. That's the having done all to stand part. To have your mind renewed to what the Bible says. Not only about what belongs to you and who you are in Christ. But about how the devil operates. Too many people don't know how the devil operates. They don't realize that he uses mental attacks. And the only thing that he's got to use is mental attacks. To try to make you change your position. Trying to get you to move off your position of standing firm upon the word of God. But having done all to stand, there's only one thing for you to do, and that's stand. But how long are we going to stand? And that's the problem with the fight of faith. How long do you have to stand till you see the answer? Jesus said, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Stand until you have them. How long is that going to take, Pastor Mike? I don't know. may take you longer or shorter depending on how much you're listening to the devil. Maybe longer or shorter, depending on how constant you're willing to be, how much you're allow, willing to allow patience to develop in your own life. Everybody tells the joke about praying, the guy that prays, Lord, I want patience and I want it now. But unfortunately, that's too often the way that we approach it. We don't want to let patience have a perfect work. We don't want to let patience cause us to be perfect and entire. Folks, when Paul got to the place where he said, I know how to live when there's plenty and I know how to live when there's nothing. What he's saying is, I have learned through much difficulty, through many terrible experiences, I have learned how to be steady no matter what. And folks, there's nothing that's more valuable than that in your life. Otherwise, you're going to be dependent on good circumstances, which too many people are. Too many people are. So the issue with time is very simply this. I don't care how long it takes. 
the word of God is true. And I'm going to stand until Jesus comes back. Because if, if I haven't received what I'm believing for by the time Jesus is coming back, I'm going to believe for something else anyway, aren't I? I mean, for example, if I'm, if I'm believing for my healing and it takes longer than a week, well, as soon as that week is over, let's say that it comes in a week. And as soon as that week's over, I'm going to start believing God for something else, aren't I? So somewhere, whenever Jesus comes back, I'm going to be standing in faith about something. So why don't we just decide, if this is the thing that we stand in faith about until Jesus comes back, so be it. I'm going to stand in faith. I'm going to stand on God's word and not be moved, no matter what. Because time is the only thing the devil has got to bring against you. Time is the only thing that he's got to say, the word's not working. If it was working, it would have worked by now. Well, says who? Wouldn't it be great if Jesus said, talking about faith in Mark eleven twenty three, 23, whosoever shall say unto the mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart for 10 minutes, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Wouldn't that be great? How long does that do things take? But if you know you're standing firm on the word. See, some things take too long because people aren't really in faith to begin with. They don't have a foundation. They haven't made the confession of the word to make it established in their heart. But other things just take time because the devil is trying to test you. The longer something takes, the greater faith it takes to bring it in. Look at the Old Testament patriarchs. They prophesied things that didn't come to pass sometimes for hundreds of years. That takes us the, the gift of faith or special faith to do. There's some things some people are believing for and some things people are standing for. That it's going to take time. So how, how is it that we listen to the devil tell us how long it should take? What does he know? I'm going to stand forever. Time is not an issue for me. Never will be. And I have to deal with the same thoughts that you do. I have to deal with the same things that the devil brings against everybody else. But when you decide this is where I'm standing and I'm going to stand for the rest of my life about something. So if this is it, this is it. The devil has no way to use it against you. Amen. Well, it's 730. You want to go on or you want to quit? All right, well, take another one or two. How do we stand when the circumstances in the natural require surgery? <laughs> That's easy. Mix faith with whatever you're doing. See, so many times the devil will try to bring condemnation to people and say, well, if you go to the doctor, that means you're not really in faith. Says who? Who made him the expert on faith? What does he know about it? Seems like if he had any good sense, he wouldn't be in the position he's in. And so the devil will come and he'll say, well, if you're really in faith, you wouldn't be going to the doctor. If you're really in faith, you wouldn't be taking medicine and so forth. Folks, God's interested in your well-being. God doesn't care if you go to the doctor. Now, there may be a, a rare exception in, in that situation. If God tells you not to do something, then that's between you and God. But outside of God just telling you, telling somebody specifically, don't do this where the doctor is concerned, then God wants you to be well. He doesn't care if you use doctors or not. He doesn't care if you use medicine or not. Because medicine or doctors neither one affect the truth of the word. So I always took what Brother Hagin taught us, and that is if I take medicine... On the occasions that I do need it. If I take medicine, I always mix faith with it. I'll say I mix faith before I take a pill or whatever it is. I'll say I mix faith with this medicine and expect to get supernatural results from it. If I know what the medicine is supposed to do, I'll say in the name of Jesus, this medicine will provide supernatural relief from the symptoms. 
in Jesus' name, or something to that effect, I mix faith with this medicine, and I expect to get supernatural results from it. And it works. Well, if God was against medicine, then your faith wouldn't work if you mixed it with it. You'd be operating outside of the will of God, and your faith wouldn't work with it. So I have great confidence in being able to mix faith with anything that I do. Bible says whatever's not of faith is sin. So anything I do, I want to mix faith with. Isn't that the right approach? So what if the doctor says you need surgery? Well, if the doctor tells me I need surgery, and I had a situation like that, the doctor told me I needed surgery on my knee, showed me the x-ray or the MRI, whatever it was, showed me the, the, um, uh, the x-ray and said, now there's nothing that can fix this except surgery. We need to go into your knee and we need to perform surgery and, and put this back together and sew this up. Here's the tear in your cartilage and, and we'll sew this back together because cartilage doesn't heal. Doesn't regenerate and, and that kind of stuff. So this is the only way to do it. Well, I said, all right, well, let me think about it and I'll let you know. So I left and before I got out of the parking lot, I knew that I knew that I knew that I wasn't going to have surgery. I, and, and at the same time that I knew that I wasn't going to have surgery, I had faith to believe God to replace this, the, the torn cartilage. So I said, Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for fixing this. The doctor just said this stuff doesn't regenerate, but he doesn't know about what you do. So in the name of Jesus, I thank you that the cartilage heals. Well, I wound up going back to the doctor some, oh, I don't know, probably eight months later. And, and for the first couple of weeks, man, my knee hurt every time I took a step on it. And I got to the place where every time I took a step, the, de- the devil's telling me, see, it's not working, see, it's not working, see, it's not working. But I just kept answering him with the word. Just kept telling him what the word says. Yeah, but the devil would say, if you knew if it was working, it wouldn't be hurting. Well, says Who? I can't find a scripture for that. I can't find a scripture that says if you believe God, you'll never hurt. I've learned not to take the devil's word for anything. So anyway, after about eight months, I went back to the doctor and he, uh, he thought I was there to have something done about my knee. And he said, oh, man, he said, I don't even want to look at your knee now. He said, it's going to be in so much worse shape than it was six, six or eight months ago, however long it was. That, that I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't even promise you anything can be done about it now. And I said, well, take another x-ray. He took an x-ray and came back and said, who, who cut on your knee? I said, nobody cut on my knee. What are you talking about? He said, well, the tear, you put them side by side. He said, the tear that was in your cartilage is gone. He said, and somebody did a good job because I can't even find a scar. I said, well, you're right about that. Somebody did a good job. But what if I'd had the surgery? Well, what if I had why don't I mix faith with it and believe God for supernatural recovery? That's not, an, that's not a, a failure. That's not a second-class position, second-rate position. Get all the help you can and mix faith with it. Amen? Amen. All right, one more. Can willful sin block your healing? I don't want to finish on that one. Well, I'll have to. Can willful sin block your healing? Well, yeah, sure. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 11. We'll close with this one. Mark chapter 11. Jesus said so. He told us this. told us about this very same point or issue. Jesus answering said unto them, verse 22, have faith in God. He's going to explain faith now. 
For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, because faith works the way he said in verse 23, he's going to expound on it. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them, the things you desire, and you shall have them. Now notice verse 25. And when you stand praying, forgive. Now verse 24 and 25 and 26 are an, a, an exposition. It's an expansion on the truth of verse 23. Verse 23 is the definition or, or description of faith in action. Whosoever shall believe in his heart and say with his mouth. That's how faith works. You say, Actually, the Bible talks about saying before it does believing. And what I mean by that is, in, uh, are you, do you remember Romans chapter 10, verses uh, 9 and 10, without having to turn over there? Romans chapter 10 talks about sa- saving faith, and it says, For with the mouth man believeth unto, conf- uh, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. With the heart man believeth, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It ta- uh, well, that's not the verse I'm looking for. What am I looking for? I'm looking for verse 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. The Bible talks about the word of God being in your mouth before it gets into your heart. We seem to have the idea that we hear the word and all of a sudden it's in our heart, so we say it. That's not the way it works. We hear it, and saying it causes it to become a part of us. So when Jesus is talking about how faith works, he says faith works by words with a heart that will believe that his words come to pass. And then he says, here are some, some uh, criteria or some conditions you need to be aware of. Faith works by praying, by believing when you pray that you receive what you, what you ask for, the things you desire. And then he says, and this will stop faith from working in verse 25. Therefore, when you stand praying, forgive if you have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. If he's just talking about forgiveness and not as being a hindrance to faith, why is he included? In other words, he's saying unforgiveness is the number one hindrance to people's faith working. What is more willful a sin than unforgiveness? See, we think of, will your faith not work if you're living in adultery? Will your faith not work if you're uh, addicted to drugs or if something, some terrible sin, something everybody else agrees is sin? But really, everything outside of love is sin. And both of the things and everything that we could put on a list that's outside of love would fall into the area of unforgiveness in some way or another. Because most of the time, people that are doing things are in unforgiveness toward themselves. So sure, willful sin will always block your faith from working. Because it's necessary for you to replace or, um, what's the word I'm looking for? To, to put yourself back under the law of love in order for your faith to work. One of the things, I don't know if you've ever looked at it or not, but um, uh, Charles Capps has got a great little book. It's, uh, it's called uh, um, God's Creative something for healing, God's creative tongue, God's creative words for healing or something, something like that. And, uh, and one, it's, it's a great book because it, it outlines some confessions, some things that uh, Charles had developed over the years. And uh, the first one is, the first one of the confession or one of the first ones is I'm walking in love. One of the first confessions he'd have somebody make before they started talking about being healed by the stripes of Jesus is to confess that they're walking in love. 
Because if you don't know you're in love, then the devil will tell you that there's going to be a hindrance to your faith. But if you're walking in love, there is no possible hindrance to your faith. Now, the Ten Commandments, we could go through and, and identify the Ten Commandments and all the things that were supposed to be sent under the Old Covenant. Every one of those is fulfilled by the law of love. If you're walking in love, you're not going to tell a lie. If you're walking in love, you're not going to covet your neighbor's wife or stuff or anything else. If you're walking in love, you're not going to bear false witness against anybody else. If you're walking in love, you're not even going to abuse your body. So certainly willful sin will hinder your healing. But you can cover that and you can fix that by staying in the law of love. Hallelujah. You need to understand something, folks. God's not looking for a way to make it hard for people to receive. He wants to make it easy. It's an amazing thing. People get in situations where, you know, they've got loved ones that are that have done things in their lives. And I've had people come ask questions. Will God forgive this? Or will God overlook that? Or will God this, that, and the other? God's not looking to make it hard for people to get in. He wants everybody in. He wants everybody in every part or every aspect of redemption. He didn't want Jesus to have paid the price for nothing. He wants everybody to partake of it. So God's not looking for a way to keep you out. He's not looking for a technicality where you can say, ah, ah, ah. Here's a reason why it doesn't work for you. He wants everybody to receive it. He wants Jesus' work and Jesus' price, the price that he paid, to be sufficient for every person on the face of the earth. He's looking for a way to get you on the inside of his blessings. There's a verse of scripture in uh, Isaiah that the Lord led me to here not, not too long ago where it said, the Lord shall guide me continually. First part of the verse is, the Lord shall guide me continually. And something about that when I read it, something about that just kind of went off on the inside of me. And I've been confessing it ever since. The Lord shall guide me continually. And I've realized that, I mean, it's, it's not anything new that, uh, other than what Jesus said, that the, when the spirit of truth has come, he'll guide you into all truth. But there was something about the way that it said what it did. There's something about the Lord will guide me continually where I started looking for the, God, for the Lord to guide me in specific areas. I, I, I said to him, now, Lord, if there's something I need to do in the area of healing, I, I'm looking for you to guide me. If there's something I need to do or something I need to change or something I need to know in the area of finances that I need to make an adjustment, I'm trusting in you to guide me. And when I started doing that just after about a week, when I started making that simple confession, it was amazing some of the things the Lord started leading me to do. Now, I knew, I knew that the Holy Ghost would guide me into all truth anyway, but there's a difference in knowing what the Bible says and saying what the Bible says. There's a lot of people that aren't receiving their healing when they know that the Bible says Jesus died for their sins and their sicknesses. Because it's not just knowing that it's in there, it's saying it that brings the power of God to bear. Say the word. Confess the word. It's your confession that makes it work. Not your knowledge that it's in the Bible. It's your confession that makes it work. Speak the word and speak the word only. Amen. Well, I've gone too long. Let me quit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the leading and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask you on behalf of each and every person in this church, I ask you to guide us continually. Show us what adjustments need to be made. If we need to make an adjustment to receive our healing, show us what we need to do. If we need to make an adjustment for our financial situation to change according to what we believe and, and desire, show us what we need to do. 
Lord, we commit to you that we will confess your word. And we declare that the confession of the word changes our situation. Physically, financially, and every other way. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.